Mark chapter 14, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, these last, um, this last week here, these final six, I guess I'll call them sections or messages, if you will, um, we've seen Jesus Christ so far as the sacrificial lamb and the stricken shepherd. That was the last two weeks. We're going to see some other roles that he fulfills as we finish up this series. And uh, today we're looking specifically at the rejected Messiah, one of the other roles that Jesus fulfilled. In Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 and 23, King David wrote this, and it's what's referred to as a messianic psalm. It means that the psalm is specifically about the Messiah. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is, a, it is marvelous in our eyes. The chief cornerstone that David is referring to there is the Messiah. And we know that because Jesus applies it to himself in Matthew chapter 12. I want you to turn to, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 21. Turn to Matthew 21 real quickly here. Matthew 21. Jesus, as he so often did, was either confronting or being confronted by the religious leaders. He had just recorded for them the parable of the landowner, which is basically where he is rebuking the leaders of Israel for rejecting their proper headship and leadership over Israel, and basically had told them that the kingdom was going to be yanked out of their hands and given to somebody else. And he says this in Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 and following, Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? That's basically his way of saying, Don't you get what's there? He knows they've read it. But basically he's saying, You don't understand what's there. He says, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in your eyes. So he quotes David's words from Psalm 118. And then he says to them in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Basically, that was a condemnation of the Pharisees, telling them that you've rejected the chief cornerstone, you've rejected the Messiah, and because of that, the kingdom of God will be ripped out of your hands and given to somebody else that will cause it to produce fruit. We know that to be, ultimately, at this point, the church. This theme of rejection is one that Jesus brought up often. Go back to... Mark, I want you to turn to chapter 8, verse 31. Mark, chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus told his disciples, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and here it is, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Turn over to chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus repeats this. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Turn over to chapter 10. In verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later he will rise again. Do you see a, a theme there? 
Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he was going to be rejected and ultimately condemned by the religious leaders. And that's ultimately the focus there. It's interesting he doesn't really mention Israel rejecting him. We know that they ultimately do. But his focus was on the leadership rejecting him. They were the ones that should have known. So as we look at our passage today, Mark chapter 14, we're going to see this play out. The chapter revolves around the trial of Jesus by the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of Israel. We're going to see him rejected by Annas, the former high priest. We're going to see him rejected by the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body, the Supreme Court. We're going to see him rejected by Caiaphas, the high priest. And then we're ultimately going to see him rejected by Peter. And so the theme of the passage today is the rejected Messiah. Why don't you go ahead and just look with this, if you will, at uh, Mark chapter 15, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14 with me. It says in verse 53, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. That's ultimately after Jesus' arrest. We know that that took place. What Mark does not include here is an event that took place between the arrest and being taken here to the high priest. I want you to look with me at John chapter 18. We're going to cover that just briefly here. This event happened to involve being taken to the house of the previous high priest. That's the house of Annas. Now the reason for this is, even though Annas wasn't really the high priest, his son-in-law was now the high priest, he was still referred to as a high priest, much like we refer to ex-presidents as what? Presidents. If you were to see President Obama walk in today, we would refer to him as President Obama. They continued to wear that title. Well, Annas continued to wear that title. John chapter 18... In verse 13, we read these words. Let's start with verse 12, actually. So the Roman cohort and the commander and all the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. I want you to jump down to verse 19. And the high priest, this is Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews came together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them and know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So after the arrest of Jesus, we see that they take him to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas begins, or I'm sorry, Annas, and Annas begins to question him about his teaching. He was curious. Obviously Jesus says, Well, I didn't do anything wrong. I simply preached to the world. They all saw me. I didn't do anything in secret. Anything you need to know, you can talk to any of my disciples. They know exactly what I did. Well, the officer that was standing next to Jesus didn't like that response, and so he strikes him, hits him. That, When you think about that in hindsight and what we know at this point, isn't that a little bit awe-inspiring in some respects? This man just struck 
God himself. I think I'd have a coronary <laughs> once I realized what I had done. But anyway, we see here that the primary point of this just brief section here is that a man who served as high priest, who should have known, in fact, his son-in-law had even said that one individual would die for the sins of all of Israel, but he just didn't get it. So he's curious. He questions Jesus, but he ultimately rejects him. You notice that it says at the very end that he sent him away. He sent him off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So the first rejection we see when it came to Christ after his arrest was by somebody who should have known better, by Annas, a respectable, by worldly standards, high priest. Go back into Mark, and we'll pick up there. So at this point, verse 53, where it says, they led Jesus away to the high priest, they're now referring to Caiaphas. The first thing we see here is that Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin in a rather clandestine way. In other words, it wasn't very open. It says that they led him away to the high priest and the chief priests and the elders of the scribes gathered together. Now the Sanhedrin was essentially the Supreme Court of Israel. It was made up of 71 religious leaders in Israel. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, assortment of characters. And according to different sources, the Sanhedrin, because they were the primary court, guaranteed at least three things when somebody was tried. The first was a public trial. It wasn't supposed to be done in secret. The second was a right to defend oneself or to have a defense present. The third was to have a solid case based on evidence from multiple witnesses. Now we're going to see that it's not really the way that it worked out here. When we look at the text here, we see that a number of these guarantees were completely ignored. First, we know that the trial was held in the wee hours of the morning. Jesus was arrested at nighttime. They came to him in the cover of night. In addition, instead of being held in the normal judicial halls of the temple, that's where trials were supposed to be held. There were actual buildings for holding trials at the temple. But according to John and Matthew, this was actually held at Caiaphas' house. They went to his palace and did it there. So not only was it at night, which violated their rules, but it was also done in private at Caiaphas' castle, his mansion, if you will, instead of being done in the halls of justice. The whole thing was actually done in secret. There was a reason for that. They couldn't possibly wait till the next day, could they, and do it in public or at a different time. We also see that the whole entire thing was a sham. In fact, look at verses 55 and following. Well, verse 54 says that Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest's house, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. What we have here, according to R.T. France, scholar on the book of Mark, he says, We have here a hearing in search of a charge. Not a trial based on already formulated accusation. While the charge had not yet been decided, the verdict was real. 
In other words, they came in with a verdict already. He is guilty of something. We're not sure what, but darn it, he's guilty of something. Does sound kind of familiar, doesn't it? So they had already made up their minds that he was guilty of something. Now they just had to find something that would stick. What's interesting about this is that the focus appears to be on terrorism. It was a, um, I'll call it a federal crime, to plot against the state in Rome, and it was a crime that ultimately required the death penalty. So if you were considered somebody who was attacking Rome, or if you were a terrorist in Rome, you got the death penalty. And that's why they focus here on the temple. He said he would destroy the temple. So they were setting him up as a terrorist. Partly the reason for that was that the Sanhedrin didn't have any um, ability to sentence somebody to death. And Rome would not sentence somebody for blasphemy, but they would sentence somebody to death if they were a troublemaker, if they were a terrorist. And so that appears to be what they were trying to hang on Jesus here, was that he was a troublemaker in society. Notice that the text says, verse 55, that they were trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now, that almost sounds like Mark is being a little bit too kind there. We know from Matthew that they weren't trying to obtain testimony. They were trying to obtain false testimony. Matthew tells us specifically that these leaders were trying to find people that would lie on the witness stand against Jesus. They weren't interested and finding testimony, they were interested in finding people that would hang Jesus. So again, Mark is being a little bit kind here by simply saying that they were trying to obtain testimony. It's pretty clear even in Mark, however, that what they were interested in was false testimony. But you notice that it says that they couldn't even get these guys to agree. Isn't that usually the case it is with false testimony? Nobody can get their stories straight. And that was part of the problem here. Is none of the testimony seemed to line up. So even as difficult as it was, or as hard as they were trying to pin the label of terrorist on Jesus here, a man who would ultimately destroy the temple in Rome and commit a capital offense against them, they had trouble finding enough people that sounded consistent. So what do we have here? Well, ultimately, we have the leaders here, the scribes, the Pharisees, the highest court in the land, ultimately rejecting Jesus as Messiah as well. This is exactly what Jesus prophesied. These people, I will be handed over to them, they will reject me, they will ultimately condemn me. They're not done with them quite yet. But Mark moves on to a third group or individual here who also rejects him, and that's the high priest Caiaphas. When the high priest realized their attempts to incriminate Jesus here were not working he decided to approach him himself. Now what's interesting about this is according to Jewish law, this would have been a violation because the priest, the the, um, head of the Sanhedrin there, the judge, was not permitted to talk at this point. He was to pronounce the ruling. He was not supposed to question the witness, so we have, again, another violation Apparently, he just got frustrated because the efforts of the rest of them, they just weren't getting the job done. You can almost just see him shaking his head and going, fine, I'll do it myself. So he steps down, 
he actually walks up to Jesus himself. It says in verse 60, the high priest stood up, came forward, and questioned Jesus, and he says this, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus says, kept silent and did not answer. So the high priest then just decided to cut right to the matter and ask him outright. All right, let's just cut to the chase. Verse 61, again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? That's a remarkable question for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it backs Mark's two goals in the gospel, doesn't it? Remember what Mark's purpose is? To show Jesus Christ is Messiah and to show him as the Son of God. We've had Peter already say, you're the Christ. We've got the uh, soldier coming up at the end of the book who's going to say, you're the Son of God. And now right here in the middle, we have the question, are you Messiah and the Son of God? Mark, I love, again, the the, the literary job that Mark does by sticking these things in here and there and keeping us on track. And so he puts these words, this question, into an enemy of Christ, someone who would ultimately reject the fact that he is Messiah and Son of God. But in many respects, he's forcing them to deal with the issue, isn't he? Mark is again forcing the Jews here to deal with that question by putting these words in the mouth of probably the most prominent religious leader in all of Israel. And so he poses this question to Jesus outright. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? The second thing that it reveals about this and why it's kind of remarkable is that this indicates that the high priest was aware that the Messiah was also the Son of God, which was debated among the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet this high priest makes that assumption. Messiah equals Son of God. Another reason it's kind of remarkable is that Jesus had avoided making such statements about himself. You notice throughout the book here, Jesus did not run around Israel saying, I'm the dude, I'm the dude, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. He talked openly with his disciples. But even when the demons tried to say that he was the Son of God, he basically said, shut up. When people were healed and they wanted to run off, Jesus said, keep it quiet. So Jesus didn't run around with a placard on his chest that said, Son of God, Messiah, deal with it. So how in the world did the, did the high priest then make this assumption? Well, it's pretty clear that word had made it throughout Israel, through the populace, that they had assumed that maybe this just is the Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus didn't have to say he was because people saw it in what he did, in the way that he taught, in the ways that he behaved. It was pretty clear to the people, that this might just be not just Messiah, but Son of God. And so he's simply asking what the populace had already pretty much questioned or assumed. But just as remarkable as the high priest's question is Jesus' response. Look at verse 62. Jesus said, I am. Very simple. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I always find it interesting when I hear people and so-called Bible scholars say, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And you think, well, what exactly does I am mean? And they point to all these other passages and stuff. And I even find it interesting that when some try to defend this, they struggle a little bit. 
And they say, well, he kind of appears to be here, and then if you put this piece over here, when you put all those together, yeah, it kind of... He says here, outright, I am. Simple answer to your question is, I am. Messiah, the Son of God. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not really the Son of God, and give some long, brief explanation. He simply says, no, I am. And then he quotes here, his favorite term of himself was Son of Man. It was a term of divinity, deity. It's kind of strange. You think Son of Man, we think, oh, he's talking about being human. But that was his favorite term to speak of his divinity. And it has to do with Old Testament theology, and it's another topic for another time. But basically, Jesus answers with unequivocal, yes, I am. The passages he quotes there are a combination of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, which are both messianic references. And so Jesus not only says, I am, but the two passages that he puts together here and quotes would have been understood as messianic prophecies by the high priest. It was absolutely clear what Jesus was saying. No question about it. So while he was a little bit secretive, if you will, with the masses when they would say, Son of God, and he would say, well, just keep it quiet for a little while. At this point, it's time to say, yes, I am. But just as we might expect, the high priest rejects him. Look at verses 63 through 65. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? Question mark. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some even began to spit on him to blindfold him, to beat him with their fists, and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Isn't that the ultimate rejection? And I asked myself, I'm like, why'd you ask the question? But isn't that often the way it is when it comes to rejection? You ask a question, you're not willing to accept the answer, not willing to give the benefit of the doubt, Caiaphas didn't say, well, okay, explain this to me then, Jesus. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's talk about what happened, what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Let's talk about all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do, and let's see how you line up with that. No. Again, it goes back to, they weren't trying to obtain testimony. They wanted Jesus to incriminate himself, and now they had it. Now, he didn't get him to admit that he was a terrorist, but it didn't matter to him at this point, because they got him on blasphemy. Blasphemy is actually... Um, ultimately saying something untrue about God. And if an individual claims to be God and he is not God, that's the highest form of blasphemy. And for that reason, the Sanhedrin now condemned Jesus to death. Now again, they didn't have the legal right to do that, so they're going to need some help. We're going to see that with when he goes before Pontius Pilate. And you're going to see the debate next week between Pontius Pilate and them because they're trying to convince Pontius Pilate Jesus deserves death. But he's basically, yeah, but maybe he does because of blasphemy, but he's never done anything against Rome, so uh, the guy's cool. You know, he's all right. But they twist and manipulate because they want him dead, but they don't have the legal right to do it. So his rejection here for the third time is seen by those, again, who should have known better. The religious leaders. I am uh, continually distressed when I look around the church today and I see the number of religious leaders we have that don't understand the Word of God. They don't understand their role and their function. 
there will be serious condemnation for those that attempt to lead the church and mislead it. I was working through, we're going to be going back into 2 Corinthians. Um, if you remember before this, we studied 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, and we broke right at chapter 10 because there's a break there. In chapters 10, 13, and 14, or I'm sorry, 10, 11, and 12, 13 through the, the rest of 2 Corinthians, is Paul warning the Corinthians, I'm coming to see you, you better be ready. In the passage I was working on last night, um, Paul was talking about these false apostles to some degree and um, about the way that they would boast and commend themselves and pat themselves on the back. And he's like, that doesn't matter because God ultimately approves. God commends. It doesn't matter what these men think of themselves. And it made me think of so many of the false teachers we have in the church today that are so very popular and how they're always patting each other on the back and that's how they become popular because they just pat each other on the back and they visit each other's churches and they pay each other and, you know, it makes this, um, it makes them look more popular and impressive than they really truly are. And so we have here these religious leaders that should have known better. But they did exactly what the Old Testament said they would do, which is to reject their Savior, reject the Son of God. The last rejection we see here in this passage with Mark has to do with Peter. And at first you may say, well, Peter didn't reject him, really denied him, but ultimately it's a form of rejection. It really is. We're not really sure what Peter thought, because Peter, even though he said, you're the Christ, which seems to to tell us he absolutely knew and even though he said, I'll die for you, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to go to death for you. After Jesus was arrested, we see this passage today. After Jesus was crucified, we see Peter go back to fishing. And so we're not really sure. I think Peter didn't come to what I'll call genuine faith until after the resurrection of Christ. Now that doesn't mean he didn't believe. But when he was tested, he needed a time of trial to prove his faith as genuine. And we see that elsewhere. You know, Jesus even tells his readers at one point, test yourselves, see whether you're in the faith. He tells that to the Corinthians. Because sometimes a testing of one's faith proves whether or not it's real. In fact, 1 Peter, we've been going through 2 Peter, I'm sorry, um, with our men's Bible study. And Peter, as he's talking to those going through trials, he says, this proves your faith. Difficult times when push comes to shove and you've got to stand up, it proves your faith, tells you that it's real. And so I believe that what happens here by Peter is an actual rejection. I, don't, I, I think he became so ashamed and was so feared for his life, he was willing to question whether or not Jesus was really who he said he was. But when Jesus walked him on the beach, I think it all light bulb went on. So let's go ahead and look at that just briefly here. We learned back in verse 54 that Peter had followed, it says, at a distance. Remember, all the apostles had scattered. Peter and then apparently one other disciple followed him at a distance. And the one other disciple, who I believe is unnamed, knew the high priest. And so he was able to get Peter into this complex area. And we see in verse 66 that Peter is warming himself with the officials. It says, and Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warning him or warming himself, she looked at him and she said, You also are with Jesus of Nazareth. So remember, Jesus said, I'll die for you. 
There's no way that I'll deny you, Lord. And so here he is by the fire. He's kind of keeping an eye on the things in the distance. And this little servant girl comes up to him and says, Oh, weren't you with Jesus? How does Peter respond? Now remember, Jesus told Peter, You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. So what happens? Verse 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, You were also with Jesus and Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out into the porch. And look what happens. The rooster crowed. That's the first time. Second time. Let's go to verse 69. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. So she talked with Peter. Peter denies it, tries to you know, get out of her space, so to speak. She goes to some others. She says, that guy over there, he was with Jesus. Verse 70. But again, he denied it. There's the second time. Let's look at the third. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them. The fact that they used the word surely there knew, or means that they knew Jesus had denied it. So maybe this has now spread a little bit. Maybe the girl said, You know, he's one of them. We keep saying he's not. So some people finally corner him and say, Wait, no, 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 wait a minute. You, you have to be. We, we recognize you. We know who you are. You're one of them, for you're a Galilean too. Look at his third response. He doesn't just say no. But again, he began to curse and swear. I don't know this man you are talking about. Explanation point. So it wasn't enough for him to say, no, I don't know him. He's angry now. How dare you accuse me of this? And so he starts to cuss and to swear. We don't know if that's foul language. I'm assuming it probably is based on the text, but it's likely um, similar to an oath. I swear on my life! As God is my witness! I don't know this man! And just as Jesus said, verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And all of a sudden, something happens with Peter. He said he began to weep. Matthew actually describes it a little more specifically. He says that he began, Luke does the same thing, he began to weep bitterly. I would imagine it was kind of that crying where his body was shaking, the tears were flowing. Probably felt sick to his stomach. Matthew and Luke also record that at this moment, Jesus leaves the courthouse and goes out onto the porch. I think that's significant. The question is, why, why would he do that? He's there to see what's going on. Well, something happens that's not recorded here in the book of Mark. And every time I read it, it man, my heart just sinks. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22, if you will. This doesn't make your skin get goosebumps. I don't know what will. Luke chapter 22. 
verse 60. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. This is when he was cursing and swearing. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Did you catch that? The Lord is off in the distance. At this point, he's been beat, spit on, slapped, cursed, rejected. Peter was a little closer, denies him, tries to get away a little bit, still a little further away. But as soon as that rooster crowed, Jesus' eyes and Peter's eyes lock. Jesus just looks at him. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine what the look on Jesus' face must have been like? Peter was probably the closest friend Jesus Christ had on this planet. Maybe John, you could argue, the one Jesus loved. But he was at least in the top three. He ranked. He was certainly the most vocal about defending Jesus. He was the one that said, Jesus, no, you can always count on me. I won't reject you. You can count on me. I will go to death for you. You can bank on it. And so that rooster crows. Jesus hears it. He knows exactly what happened. And all he does is look over at Peter. Peter left because he didn't want Christ to see him. Isn't that often the way it is? Why is it you see people, when they're charged with crimes and they come out of the courtroom, they're covering up their heads with their jackets and their coats. They don't want you to see their face. There's the shame, the disappointment there. This reminds me of... um, when I was in high school, my dad and I didn't get along very well. Um, I was arrogant, rude, boastful, proud. Um, so we would fight all the time. And uh, remember this time where we had gotten in a pretty significant argument. And um, I had gotten into some trouble and some other things. And um, life was not good at this point. Um, and I remember we got in this pretty nasty argument, and I was bad-mouthing Dad and some other things. And he disappeared. He just left. Went down the hallway. I didn't really see where he went, but the bedrooms are down the hallway. And I remember I'm sitting in the living room, and I think I was watching TV or something. And I was feeling pretty, I wouldn't say proud of myself, but pretty you know, puffed up with pride or whatever you want to call it. And I think probably 10, 15 minutes went by. And all of a sudden my mom appears. And she's standing in the entrance to the living room. And she just kind of looked at me. And she said, you know, I want to tell you something. She said, you know, I've been married to your dad for X number of years. And she said, I've never known him to cry. Never. Didn't cry when his sister died. His sister, she was a nun in the Catholic Church. Dad had um, eight brothers and sisters. And I remember when she died. Remember it was hard on dad. But she said, he didn't cry when his sister Mary died. You know, in fact, when his mom died, I didn't see him cry at the funeral either. But I want you to know, right now, he's down in the bedroom, and he's crying. Man, I sat in that chair, and I think I probably shrunk. I just looked at her and said, fine. Puffed up with pride. But inside, man, that cut. That just cut. Talk about the shame I felt. I wasn't willing to admit it. I just wanted her to go away. I don't want to think about that. To think that I 
caused Dad to cry for the first time that Mom had seen him do it. I imagine as Jesus looked at Peter and Peter saw that glance, just ran out of there, couldn't stand the thought of Jesus looking at him after he had betrayed him. Again, as we look at the life of Peter, this is referred to as denial, but in many respects it's a rejection of Christ. So what do we do with this? Obviously, if you know, and I assume you all do, you know, Jesus, it's hard for you to put yourselves in the shoes of his enemies who rejected him. I find myself, I'm thinking, I'm not like those Pharisees. I'm not like the two high priests. I'm not even like Peter. I haven't rejected Christ, you know. But when you think about it, we're probably the closest to Peter here, aren't we? We know that at this point, Peter's just afraid. You know, he's seeing what's happening to Jesus. He doesn't want that for himself. And so, his rejection here, in his case, was motivated primarily out of fear. Anxiety. Where the others, it was just hatred. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Peter loved Jesus. It's pretty clear. But that love that he had for him wasn't quite enough for him to overcome what he, what he did here at this point. So fear got the best of Peter, and he did something that he regretted, obviously. He wept bitterly here. He ran out. Um, We might never face a situation like he did. You know, we've talked about this before, um, the persecution that we see escalating in so many parts of the world. Just this week alone, I saw numerous articles on the continued persecution of the Chinese Christians and how difficult it's become for them, the physical abuse um, and everything else. Um, Nigeria has become a hotbed Um, Iran has become another hotbed again India, persecution in India has been escalating so we now have the two largest countries in the world that contain the population of almost half the world are escalating their persecution against Christians they will face this there's no question they do on a regular basis I don't know if we will but what's interesting about this is we may never face something as serious and severe as Peter did here But there are some subtle ways that we oftentimes deny Christ, aren't there? Think about it for a moment. Um, Maybe we don't always share the gospel because we're too embarrassed or worried that it might offend. Have you ever find yourself in that position where you know somebody that doesn't know Jesus and you're just, you know, you're a little embarrassed maybe to talk about the gospel or religion with them? Why is that? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. And yet, I'll be the first to admit, there's times where I don't share the gospel and I know darn well I should have. For any number of reasons. And sometimes it's all—it's because I don't want to cause some uneased tension between me and my coworker. And I've shared with you recently how I continue to pray that God would open my eyes to that a little bit and give me more opportunities. And he's been doing a, a neat thing and allowing me more opportunities to share. Maybe we back down or we remain silent when we are confronted over our biblical values. You know, it's interesting watching what's happening within the church when it comes to the whole LGBTQ thing. There are many Christians who don't want to appear bigoted and so they're afraid to say, no, I think it's wrong. They just want to remain quiet. Or they say, well, that's a side issue. That's not a side issue, folks. 
If somebody says they love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they continue in that lifestyle, there's a problem. So it isn't just a minor issue. It's at the heart of the gospel. But sometimes we just back down, want to remain silent, don't want to rock the boat. That's a form of denial. We're supposed to be a light. We're supposed to stand up. doesn't mean we have to run out there and protest at pride festivals or stuff like that. But certainly, when the time comes and we have an opportunity to speak openly and honestly about God, we need to. How about this? Maybe we act or speak in ways that defy our position in Christ. You think sometimes maybe we do things that um, make Christ look bad? Isn't that a form of denial in some respects? Because Paul says we're supposed to, in Ephesians, we are supposed to live according to our calling. What happens when we don't live according to our calling? What happens when we don't live in a way that honors Christ? Well, we're no longer living according to our calling. That is a form of denial, if you will. It's a form of rejecting the one who's died for us. Now, not in the sense of loss of salvation, but certainly um, not living in a way that speaks very loudly. I love Jesus Christ. I recognize him as my Savior. So again, I think it's maybe a little difficult for us to put ourselves into a passage like this in terms of rejection until we sort of sit back and say, well, we're kind of like Peter in some respects at times. At least if you're anything like me. That's one of the prayers that's been on my heart recently is that um, I think I've become much too comfortable sometimes, you know, and um, need to not be so afraid of rocking the boat or what people might think. Um, And instead, proudly and boldly confess, no, I love Christ. I love what he stands for. It may make me look like a bigot at times. It may make me look judgmental at times. But I will try my best to be gracious and kind in the way that I represent Christ. But I don't want Christ to ever look at me and say, you know what? How come you were a little ashamed? Or how come you didn't do A, B, or C? I don't want to have the conversation Jesus had with Peter on the beach. <laughs> All right, Peter, let's talk about this. Do you really love me? So in some respects, like I said, I find myself kind of like Peter. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and just leave it with that and let you guys chew on that today. But again, we've seen Jesus fulfill a number of these roles, including this role of the rejected Messiah. We'll continue this over the next few weeks here. I think we've got three more here where we'll see additional roles that Jesus fulfills as we go through Mark.